This week on Behind the Idea, we look at Boeing in light of its recent 737 MAX crash and the attendant issues. I look at the salience that these issues have in consumers and governments' lives. You, you know, if you're Indonesia and one of Lion Air is one of the crashes already, you really, when you say that our customers are not comfortable flying on these planes, you probably have grounds to say that. Mike looks at how industrial policy in light of this could erase Boeing's moat. If I'm a government sponsoring industry, and I know that I can create an entrant into the duopoly market of aircraft manufacturer, and it's going to cost me and my taxpayers 23 billion euros in public support of this company, I think I do that deal. A big event like this shakes the faith consumers, governments, and investors have in even a market leader like Boeing. As the repercussions play out and as recovery goes on, the question investors are asking is, where does Boeing go next? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today we are talking about Boeing, ticker symbol BA, the aerospace giant whose amazing recent run has been interrupted by some high-profile crashes of its 737 MAX 8 aircraft. Ethiopian Flight 302 crashed on March 10th, 2019, killing 157 people. Lion Air Flight 610 crashed on October 29th, 2018, killing 189. And this is called into question Boeing's responsibility in these events, as well as the future of the company in general. Writing in mid-March, shortly after the Ethiopian disaster, Seeking Alpha author Wolf Report was undeterred by the recent challenges and was looking for a further dip in the stock as a potential buying opportunity. Uh, With the shares down slightly since uh, Wolf Report published his article on March 11th, uh, we're looking at Boeing now and evaluating the impact of these crashes, Boeing's overall business model, and what the future of the company may hold. But before we get into all that, we have a quick disclosure. Behind the Idea is a podcast that looks around Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any stocks mentioned, and absolutely nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any kind. Before we get into Boeing, though, a quick word from our new sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds, about a podcast that you might like. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, so the overall thesis of this article is that And it's interesting because Wolf Report predicts that the share price will decline somewhat in the coming days. And he's been right about that since publication. We're recording this on March 22nd. In the weeks between publication and today, stock is down around 
6% or so. It's off around 20% from its all-time highs. And the thesis is basically that because Boeing has such a strong business model, has such an advantage in the aerospace, defense, and commercial aviation industries, that these are really temporary headwinds. These crashes and the related issues with the aircraft itself are not meaningful impediments to the long-term success of the business, nor impediments to continued rise in Boeing's stock price. And so the first sort of element of this that I think we need to talk about is what is the damage to Boeing in sort of tangible terms? What's sort of at stake for the company? This is a typical thing that we do in these kind of potential value situations where stocks goes down because of temporary news, but maybe the entire business model is sound. So what's the potential damage here and how do we sort of scale that relative to Boeing's business overall? Daniel, what are your initial thoughts here? Well, I think you can look most near term, you can look at what does Boeing have to do now to make up for this? What do they have to change? What do they have to spend on? And I'm sure you've read conflicting th- or various reports. I've read various reports. You see a lot go on Twitter, whatever else. But, you know, there's talk about whether it was the software that they've installed, whether it was proper training, et cetera. And so Boeing has to do the investigation to figure out what went wrong. And then they have to spend money to, f- to fix it, presumably with all of the 737 MAX 8 airplanes that they've already delivered. If they want those to be still viable, that's, that's sort of immediate clean up the damage. Number two is the hit to their potential backlog. These It takes a while to build a plane. You have a big backlog of orders. Just today, we had a report on Seeking Alpha that Indonesia's national airline is trying to back out of an order for the 737 MAX 8s. The backlog may take a hit as Boeing has to reassure clients that they've solved this problem. So they may not only have to spend more money, but they may have to face lower revenue because of what's going on. And then I think most abstractly, but meaningful is the fact that whatever whatever costs they have to spend fixing this, potentially redeveloping things or potentially coming up with a new strategy, but their reputation does take a very real hit Airplane crashes are quite infrequent, but when something happens, it obviously it's of a much bigger scale than your ordinary cause of death. It's a much more headline grabbing thing. And it's something that really, I think, grabs has, I, I can't recency bias or whatever the, the, it grabs the attention of anybody because we've all been in, in, or most of us have been in airplanes and you have that loss of control over anything going on. And so Boeing is now associated with two major crashes in six months. And, you know, the stories are coming out that they rushed to market or whatever else. It doesn't look good for them. So I think there's that reputational hit. The question is, how much does that reputational hit really matter in this industry? But I think those would be the three axes that I would look at. The costs for repairing the issue, the potential loss in specific revenue, and then their reputation and what that means for their business going forward. 
What do you think? Uh, yeah, I focused initially on the costs when I was thinking about this, and I just googled the <laughs> the uh, the max eight, and Wikipedia was one of the first things that came up, and it listed program cost at two to three billion dollars, which I imagine is kind of R and D and figuring out the concept for the playing the kind of capital investment they needed to make to sort of create this new aircraft, although I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's not super important, but the unit cost of the Max 8, according to Wikipedia, is around the 120 million range or something like that. And Wolf Report says in the article that there's a backlog of 4,000 of these. So to put a like sort of total nightmare scenario cost or just ballpark what we would be looking at here that's i mean that's a big if if they need to rebuild entire the entire max 8 backlog from scratch then i guess that would be 484 billion dollars of replacement value i've been known to misplace a zero but 121 times 4000 should get a hundred four hundred eighty four thousand, so that would be times a million four hundred eighty four billion dollars. And so check just out. for context, yeah, I, I think it does. And for context, Boeing is a hundred billion dollar in revenue last year, two hundred fifteen billion dollars in market cap right now, and not and more or less, given their size, more or less no net debt. I think they have about four billion in net debt. And so just to give sort of a scale of the company, we're talking $100 billion in revenue, profitable, quite profitable, as we'll discuss. And so you can start to see where these costs add up. Yes, although I don't think that anyone would ever project $484 billion total costs associated with the Max 8 problems and with these crashes. That was just to give me a, a range, but I think the range is zero. Boeing could wind up getting away scot-free. I see an example where they won't have to pay anything out necessarily, or somehow there would be a determination that no fixes are required of the plane, or it would be effectively zero, all the way up to this sort of gigantic half trillion dollar <laughs> number, which is ridiculous. But it's somewhere in that range, and that was just my initial back of the envelope thought. And it, I think it helps when you're in these situations to try and figure out what sort of the max risk would be. So that would wipe out the company, but I don't think that's anywhere near, you know, there's been no that I've seen issues with the the air conditioning system in these planes, for example, as far as I know, works fine. It is a, it is a, seems to be, at least according to the reporting we have at hand, an isolated issue related to the navigation system or the the software that determines the kind of trajectory of the plane as it's either nosing down or nosing up. Apparently, there's software that helps you helps the pilot know how the plane is pitched, and there's an issue with that. But what that means is that there isn't an issue with the entire plane. They don't need to rebuild the fleet from scratch. So that ceiling number isn't the real number. And I saw a news item that said that from Jeffries, though, that this is still a really meaningful potential cost to Boeing. 
Jeffries estimates that a full halt of deliveries would cost Boeing $5.1 billion or 5% of annual revenue in a two-month time period alone. So that's $30 billion in run rate costs. And 5% of annual revenue, I, I think their net margins are around 10%. So it's a really meaningful amount that... And that's a, you know, that's a sell side analyst. You can question their sort of overall ability to project stock prices, but generally Wall Street analysts are among the best people at making estimates about the impact on, on the fundamentals of certain events. So I think that that's a pretty handy way of looking at it. And 30 billion in run rate costs would be a really substantial, I think, hit. So the stock price has gone down since this news has emerged and the news of the patterns between the two plane crashes has emerged. But I think there's reason to suspect that there would be further downside from here. Given the kind of potential scale, you could see this potentially flipping a sign from profitability, profitability to negative net income. That's conceivable. So my initial take here is that there's there's room to be cautious here. We can get in more into the kind of how the business model and how the industry dynamics play into all this, and maybe that talks us off the ledge a little bit. But my gut take here is that you know there's there's substantial additional risk. Well, we've talked a lot this year by coincidence, I guess, but about companies like Davida like Lyft, like PG&E most notably, or Bank of America even, where there's a lot of salience to the customer and thus to the government. And so I think that's something that sort of is built in here to some degree is just the fact that you, you know, if you're Indonesia and one of Lion Air is one of the crashes already, you don't really have you really, when you say that our customers are not comfortable flying on these planes, you probably have grounds to say that. And as the Twitter sphere watched closely to see whether the US would suspend the 737 MAX 8 or not, like there's this sort of pressure around this. There's this, how, how can you not do that? And that will potentially extend into the repercussions as far as whether it's, on the customer side or whether it is different regulatory guidelines or whatever it is. So I think that it's, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, that sort of thing. It's happened twice. And I think, yeah, I think it's a lot, it's right to build in some sort of, this isn't a humdrum missed quarter or something like this is something that both as a one-time hit and as the questions it raised is about Boeing, I think it does endure a little bit longer. And that's where maybe it's worth sort yeah. of getting into because there, there's also a flip side to that too, right? One of the things I was thinking about is is what they say about Facebook, for example, and, and the other online advertisers with the, whether it's GDPR or whatever new privacy regulations and how that sort of plays into the hands of the incumbents because they just have the most money to deal with that and new new startups is really tough. I wonder if with Boeing too as we look at their position in the industry it could be that 
ultimately increase scrutiny and in getting this right if they handle it correctly, if they identify the correct problem, if they sort of emerge from this, it actually plays to the company's advantage because this is not a very low barrier to entry industry, right? I mean, the air, there aren't many airplane makers in the world. And so it seems like that in some way, again, echoes of pg e as well. There's almost the government almost has to figure out how to get it right with Boeing because people are going to want to fly places and you need to just fix the planes, right? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think that you've touched on a lot of things there. And so maybe we should just transition a little bit into the business model discussion overall. Uh, you mentioned Facebook and I, as you were talking, I, Facebook came to mind for me too. And in terms of kind of how governments and regulators have to respond to companies, I think, and you mentioned, you know, kind of biases or psychological issues and immediacy bias and how everyone or a lot of people know what it's like to fly on a plane and know what it's like to be afraid of a plane crashing, which I think is one of the reasons that plane crashes sort of capture everyone's imagination and attention. And I think we saw a similar thing with Facebook. There was sort of an issue arose, another issue arose, and then you never really know what's going to galvanize the public and mobilize them to call for a specific actual action. You don't necessarily know what regulators or governments, what's going to tip them over into taking action. There's kind of a binary condition between doing something to change the regulatory status quo or just letting it kind of slide and imposing the existing structure on companies. And I think that your example with Indonesia is is on the nose where we that's an example of they reached a tipping point where they're, you know, they're not going to do things the same way anymore. They decided that they're, you know, these these planes aren't safe or the people decided these planes aren't safe. And you I think that show because it becomes a sort of binary thing, then you can't necessarily do the math and calculate a happy medium. I think that we talk a lot about the different kinds of risks, and I am starting to try and think about these in terms of distributions and bell curves and expected values and ranges of possibilities. And one thing I think that happens is risk transforms over time. And before the crashes, I think Boeing kind of had a nice bell curve risk profile distribution, at least in the eyes of investors. And I think what might be happening now is it's becoming more polarized. There are sort of now two peaks to the distribution and one is a potentially highly negative outcome and another is a sort of less frightening outcome. But now there's you have to sort of reconfigure how you assess the company's potential outcomes. That was the first thing that came to mind. There's all this the the way the math works or the way you calculate or picture the kind of potential outcomes here, I think, shifts once you have one of these catalytic events. So maybe let's let's do that with the business model then is just to kind of see what the starting state is and then that enables us to kind of back into how much we should weigh the change i think i i i wanted to share some valuation numbers i know we can go into their 
they're Boeing. It's a duopoly with Airbus, a European company, and that's, you know, most of the planes that we fly in are one or the other. But I think the valuation just is sort of a, as a temperature check to just kind of set the scene a little bit. And this surprised me a little bit because Boeing, I had sort of caught on to the thread that Boeing had taken off as a stock uh, really strongly over the last few years, which is true. If you look at their, th- this, uh, this most recent event in Ethiopia happened more or less 10 years after the bull market started in 2009. And if you go from that date in 2009 until their bottom in February of 2016, when we had that sell-off at the beginning of 2016, the company more or less doubled. And then from that date on to before this news, it grew much faster. And so the stock went up really high. Valuation numbers that are interesting to me are that the company, as I said, doesn't really have net debt. It's only four billion net debt. It is, I believe, that it produced me, seventeen. By the way, you thought it would have more debt. Yeah, I just think of a giant industrial company, and that that it has a pretty enormous asset base. And then, yeah, a lot of things surprise. But I just, yeah, the debt. I I thought they would have more debt. I thought the company would be more levered, and I thought that that was going to be a bigger risk factor for us to talk about, but apparently not. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what to, I thought they would have a lot of cash. They have a decent amount of cash, and then I, I netted out, by the way, investments, which I think the long term investments. I don't know if that was right to do, but it, it's not a huge number. So we're talking about four or five billion dollars in net debt, but. They produced $17.85 in earnings per share last year. Free cash flow per share was $23.62. 2019 EPS estimates sourced to Seeking Alpha, which I assume is not factoring in any changes yet, is $20.2 per share. So at the current price of around $370 a share, talking about a PE a little under 21, a price to free cash flow of under 16, and a forward PE of 18. If you use Wolf Report's buy, bottom of their buy range, which was 330, we're talking about a PE of 18, price free cash flow of 14, forward PE of a little more than 16. And so just as some context, the company that, that's not on the face a crazy multiple for a company that is in a duopoly that appears to have strong market share and strong barriers to entry in their industry and doesn't it's hard to imagine if you think 10 years from now it's hard unless you pull on one of these more extreme scenarios to imagine a world where boeing is not only around but a major player in the airplane industry so i I just wanted to share those valuation numbers what did you what did you find as far as their sort of their actual positioning their actual industry outlook mike Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on the Boeing Airbus duopoly or the way the way the commercial aircraft manufacturer business or or the defense space, which is the other area where Boeing has a meaningful business exposure. But I did I what this made me think of kind of is the argument in Wolf Reports 
discussion and a lot of the argument seems to be around Boeing has this tremendous scale advantage that it takes so much to develop an asset base and develop the intellectual capabilities to create airplanes. It's so sort of complicated and capital intensive that it's not possible really to, or it's extremely difficult and it's a deterrent for smaller entrants to do this. And I I was just thinking sort of in general, how much do we believe in scale as a competitive advantage when it comes to industrial manufacturing? And my thought was maybe that that's more of like a 20th century way of assessing competitive advantage. And the reason I thought that was because Wolf Report mentions that Airbus needed some subsidies of, you know, 22 billion euros or something before the company became self-sufficient and profitable. And my reaction to that was if, if I'm a government sponsoring industry and I know that I can create an entrant into the duopoly market of aircraft manufacturer, and it's going to cost me and my taxpayers 23 billion euros in public support of this company, I think I do that deal. I just, I think that I, it doesn't seem like a lot to me. Like, I think that that's a, so that's, that's just one example. But even if you look at Boeing's asset, total asset base of $117 billion, that's a lot of money. But capital markets, at least in the, this recent bull market, have seemed amenable to a lot of long-term expenditure in a way that made me sort of rethink my concept for, obviously you can't build a new Apple and a new GM and a new this and that, but are we really sure that a, a large asset base is that much of a deterrent to competitors in a world where we have highly active and sophisticated venture capitalists and other people willing to sort of make really intense long-term bets and a sort of investor base that may be capable of unseating even these huge companies. So that's a big picture, but I think it's important to sort of consider. It's interesting to think about, we sort of are beyond our capabilities, I think here, but we sort of take it also as grant for granted. And maybe that's just what the money's for, but I assume airplane design is not, super easy i assume that there's and that there's probably some sort of protections patent protections whatever else i wonder if that's also we like and i think that specifically with relevant to wolf reports point which they dismiss and i think you have a point in your notes about this too about potentially china developing the capacity to build airplanes and to compete with boeing and airbus and because you know outside of that i think you have bombed Bombardier, which is Canadian. I think you have Embraer, which is Brazilian, but they're both kind of smaller aircraft firms. And I wonder about, you know, concerns with China around intellectual property. Is that, you know, something that allows them to get a leg up is through abuse of intellectual property, but also 
we've been saying this for a long time about China. And, you know, there's things like Xiaomi is the telephone manufacturer. It's sort of, it's not to, we've been talking a lot about China this year. And I don't want to, uh, I think there's, I'm sure there are considerable gains made in the technology there. But I also wonder if we, and maybe that's where we really do have to extend to a longer time frame to think about this is how far do, how long does it take to learn all of those things and specifically and this was where the what i was sort of thinking about with that facebook point earlier from my end which is you can't you can't get this wrong like you can't get airplane manufacturing wrong you're not nobody cares if you have a 99.9% success rate because then one out of a thousand times you're crashing so you really don't have and, you know, I'm sure there are ways to test both uh, literally and through computer simulations or whatever else. But it's like something that's such a high degree of that of need to get it right and then need to develop a reputation that I wonder that that's sort of where I think I wonder if that's a counter to what you're saying about because I hear what you're saying about, look, ultimately, you can spend the money. And if you think the mar- the opportunity is big enough, you're talking about, I mean, Boeing. I shared those numbers. Boeing's stock has gone up a lot faster than its revenue for certain, but also than its EPS. You know, it's getting a ton of leverage from relatively low revenue growth as a comparison. And so there's something to be grabbed there, but it may take a while. It may take a lot of time to elbow into that arena. Yeah, I... I guess I just wanted to raise the question and I think it's open for me. I, the thing that came to mind, so I think an, an analogy you could draw here is between the existing automobile manufacturers and Tesla. And, you know, there's a huge debate on seeking alpha and else, elsewhere. And Elon Musk certainly doesn't make it any easier to sort of assess what's going on there. But the, but the basic point is that Tesla is basically a case study of for what I'm talking about, which is a company that has enormous financial access to capital markets that can be basically, and we'll see how it goes from here, but historically has been able to basically raise money at will. And vehicle manufacturer may have a little bit greater tolerance for imperfection in the product, but it's the same thing. It's a high speed industrial good that transports people from one place to another. And when things go wrong, they go wrong in kind of a very ugly and salient way for people. It's regulated in the same way. And it's not a duopoly, but it's an oligopoly in some measure. Tesla's trying to enter that market and basically <laughs> do a replacement cost business where they just sort of recreate participant in the auto auto manufacturer industry from scratch. Has that experiment succeeded or failed? I'm not sure, but a lot of bears have said for a long time that the incumbent auto manufacturers have scale. They have perfected this and Tesla's had a lot of issues related to trying to fight its way in from the outside rather than work with industry. But nevertheless, there are Tesla cars on the road. People know what Teslas are. They have entered the market. So I just, I think 
maybe it's just me personally reconfiguring what I think it means to have a scale-based deterrent to entry. It's not a full protection and it's contingent on the market environment. You know, if capital markets were much tighter, then we might not have ever seen Tesla reach even whatever level it's reached recently. You know, but I think Tesla had a $50 billion valuation. So it's on the scale of being able to to play a part in a large market. And that was out of nothing. I think they were basically created during the the mid-aughts. And then 15 years later, they're not they're not a scary player, but they're a player in the industry. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. But in terms of Boeing's business model and what I see for Boeing, I don't know. I I have a hard time with this. I have, you know, CapEx of has ranged between 1.7 billion to 2.6 billion in the past five years. And but they've done some acquisitions and stuff. To me, it's all the same. Cash from investing, 2.5 billion to 4.6 billion. That's a meaningful proportion of revenue, but Overall, this seems, I was surprised that almost seems low to me as well. I guess this is kind of a $10 billion profit company, something like that. I, For some reason, the accounting statements for me for Boeing don't necessarily sort of line up with what I would have expected. Gross margins, for example, are around 20%. I would have thought for a duopolis, that seems low to me. And yeah, net margins around 10%. Maybe that's pretty good. But for a company that's commanding so many assets, I guess, what did we say? A 10 or a 6% free cash flow yield, something like that. I guess going down the line from top line to bottom line, I can't say that I'm overwhelmingly impressed from what I'm seeing on the income statement. I think what's really maybe the impressive part is asset turno- turnover where they, you know, basically they generate their asset base in sales every year or something like that. But I'm not sure I look at the financial statements of Boeing and I see an amazing Titan, a duopolist. I don't know if it's the, are those Google numbers? I don't know. Doesn't look exactly the same to me. What do you think? I was surprised that CapEx is as low it is, as it is. And maybe, maybe it's just that the way they account for things, like maybe the way they account for their costs comes yeah. more out of the income statement than it does capitalized and that's part of what's causing this confusion yeah i don't know i i wonder the comparison to google like first of all relevant because i think people have pointed out that software is involved in this case and is example of the the increasing sort of spread of software for better or worse but also that's a low asset business whereas boeing does have a lot of assets and so maybe that's part of the difference but yeah it's a little bit i mean the stock is obviously you not to just point to the stock price but the stock price has been really impressive 13 billion dollars in free cash flow is i think the number which is also the amount that they've returned to shareholders so it's not only a six percent free cash flow yield but it's about that yield on total shareholder return if however you want to call it where you're combining share buybacks and dividends. I didn't see if their share count is actually 
decreasing, but so that they're actually returning cash to shareholders historically. We, we'll see what happens here, but yeah, I don't know. It, 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 that's what sort of makes it, that's what I'm interested about is the analysis. I guess that's where you, you essentially have to work on two levels here. You have to decide how much does this matter? What's happening? How much is this going to cost Boeing? What's the realistic range? And then also, Ignoring that, what is the fair valuation for Boeing? The a game we haven't played in a few weeks, if longer, that comes to mind here is what what's the cycle? Where are we in the cycle? Because I, I took a look at Boeing's past cycles, and again, this is all investing in so much about the time frame you're looking at. But in 2007 to 2009, earnings per share dropped 65 percent from 2001 to 2003, earnings dropped 74%. So earnings per share got cut in three and in four in the last two recessions. Bounced back pretty well the year following that drop, but took a few years to catch up to previous peaks. So I don't know how much we want to be thinking about the sector or the cycle in that respect. And then the other thing that comes to mind is that Wolf Report sort of sort of makes it sound like, oh, yeah, there's still the defense business and whatever else. But the commercial business, that is Boeing. I mean, it's 60% of their revenue. It's the higher margin business. They have a third unit after defense, which is basically aftermarket, which I assume applies to both commercial and defense. So that's still a big part of it. So we're talking, you know, I'm without breaking down aftermarket too finally, I'm going to say about 70% of their revenue is probably related to the commercial business. And so that's, this is Boeing. So that, so what's going on is sort of at the core of Boeing, both in terms of their reputation, but also in terms of their key business line. And yeah, I, 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 so I think to your point, I think, look, if you can print $10 billion in net income and you expect it to continue to rise because you have a strong market position because Despite your arguments, the asset base is not easily replicable and the com- commercial relationship and everything else. And yeah, I think the, the valuation becomes reasonable. But when they, then when you start asking questions about, okay, but your reputation is hurt. There's some near term cost to this. At some point, the cycle is going to turn over and everything else. All of a sudden, it becomes the question becomes a little bit less easy to answer as far as what is the correct valuation for Boeing in the different scenarios that you might have this issue play out. So let's talk, I want to piggyback off the uh, cyclical versus secular and the kind of long-term prospects. But first, let's make time for another word from Oppenheimer Funds. Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds called Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends explores and explains those opportunities. I'm your host, Manita Huja. I'm an award-winning business journalist and author. Tune in to hear me talk to the experts about thinking globally when it comes to investing. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, so talking about the cycle, I 
I don't know. I'm of two minds here. I think we do a lot of scaring ourselves out of ideas based on where we think we are in the cycle. And I think that comes down to a kind of market timing or economic cycle timing thing. And I guess there is a playbook you could draw up where you say, okay, you know, at the bottom of cycles, Boeing yields, wound up yielding some amount of free cash flow for investors based on whatever its value was sort of towards the bottom of cycle or at bad times. And so we should target that type of expected return going forward. On the other hand, you could just say like, I'm going to own this across cycles. It doesn't really matter as long as the valuation isn't obscene. This is a kind of duopolist. And if if the cash flows really are pretty low risk and you're getting 6% free cash flow yield, then I could see you just saying, the cycle's going to do what it does, but Boeing's not going anywhere. I'm going to own this for decades, so who cares? And I would buy that. On the other hand, I like a little bit steeper return for my company-specific risk investments. I do. We talked with Paul Brady and others about Delta Airlines and the kind of environment we're in for. Uh, that's a very sort of consumer friendly, demand friendly air travel market. People point to, I saw this in the comments on articles, even saw this in an article. You know, people need to fly, people want to fly, they're going to be flying. The air travel market is going to grow at some steady pace from here going forward. And I think that those are all sort of contingent realities. Those are cyclical realities. Those are not sort of just embedded in the way the world is going to work from here. I think that we're in a uniquely special spot where air travel is easy and accessible to a growing population, but I don't think that that's necessarily a condition we could expect to be the same forever. Whatever your views on global warming, I, I'm concerned air travel is a major contributor to that. I wonder if there are taxes coming that are going to impact demand or simply just regulation. I don't think that it's a completely neat story. I, I don't think I convinced Daniel here about a Tesla of air travel coming onto market, but I think China is a meaningful competitive threat. So. I was just trying to keep Tesla Q off our backs by avoiding that, avoiding a direct Come on. response to that. But I would love for some mean comments from some Tesla Q people. Come on out. Come on out, guys. We love you. Well, please at Mike, not me. There was a funny part or not funny, but there was a part in Wolf Reports that was ironic or sad kind of that he mentioned high up that Boeing has a kind of some new autopilot technology coming online in the coming years. Obviously, that's going to be under some additional scrutiny. And then the part of the big bull case for Tesla initially was that autopilot for personal vehicles would be coming online. And obviously, there have been some sort of high profile accidents associated with Tesla's autopilot and also just hasn't materialized as a reality for drivers on the timeline we expected. So when you're looking at potential technological innovations, I think that's another caution to sort of take into account. 
I did want to mention one more thing about sort of timing mismatch. I saw some some sort of ghost of an argument that this these these crashes and these headwinds for Boeing are going to create the opening that allows China to sort of enter the market. And I don't think that's right. The way that these businesses work is that they develop these long-term relationships. They develop enormous order backlogs. Boeing has contracts that even if customers are not happy with the product, there's a lot that sort of goes into those that will be difficult to unwind them, I would imagine. And so a headwind that's potentially resolved in the next year or six months, even if you look at the Volkswagen emissions scandal, effectively, I think two or three years later, that was more or less in the rearview mirror for them. I don't think that the timescale matches up where it's like, ah, this opening and then it may it may be helpful, but I don't see this as like the catalytic event for entry to market, even by a big player like China. I think they would come in regardless. They're either planning to do it or not. And a, a couple of really high profile and tragic events are not necessarily the things that are going to influence their decision processes. So, yeah, what do you think, Daniel? Well, I was just going to ask where you end up then with Wolf Report, because it sounds to me like we're not super bullish on the just by the dip aspect of this, even though, and to be fair, Wolf Report said they were waiting for more of a dip, which I don't know if we're... They've gotten a little bit of one. Yeah. But the... So my sense is that we're... Which I think we share... My sense is that we're not... We're not super sure about this, that they, this raises a lot of questions for Boeing that you need more, more time to answer and more conviction to be able to say that this is going to be something that ends up with Boeing in a strong, as a favorable investment. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd, I'll try and get a little bit more conviction. I think if you like Boeing and you believe the business story and you believe that it's protected from incumbents that it doesn't seem expensive and there's a lot to like about the business i think you know the one of the things that you mentioned briefly that i think is really notable is just the sheer amount of cash that's been returned to shareholders over time and if that's a sustainable level of shareholder friendliness, then I think that's really attractive. I think there's a lot to like about Boeing. I do think the business characteristics overall are reasonable. I I think I would make this kind of decision without becoming an aerospace expert. I don't think that that's the level that I would go to. So I think, and I think the, the good thing that Wolf Report did here is the author is more or less a kind of long-term focus, cash flow focus, dividend growth type of investor. He or she had a plan for this type of event and knows what to do. And I think given, given the assessment and given the risk tolerance and the sort of objectives, I think that the, it was a really nice defense of a investment strategy that fit with the overall sort of portfolio philosophy. For me, I'm 
I'm looking for 10% plus earnings yield on my investments if I'm going into something as risky as a specific company. And even Boeing, which is beautiful in a lot of ways, doesn't meet that criterion. And so it's kind of a pass for me just because of my the level of demanding I try and be when I'm looking at investment opportunities. It means I don't make a lot of investments in individual companies, and that's where I am personally with Boeing. But there are other investors out there who I think that there's there's a lot to like here, actually. And I wouldn't, I'm trying not to scare myself out of things based on cyclical arguments. And that's one thing that I wouldn't do here. So no, I'm actually somewhat, I'm kind of bullish on Boeing. And I think that Wolf reports correct that the drop that followed that correctly, he, he or she correctly called. Yeah. I, I think that there may be something to looking at this as a long-term investment. What about you? I think you're, uh, I think there are too many questions for me and that it also doesn't, it just doesn't interest me as a story enough to dig deeper as an investment. It's an interesting, I think the topic and the reason that we caught on to this, I think is that whenever you have this sort of reaction to news, there are a few interesting things that go on because there's the short term sell off, which is the market trying to discount what this means. There's still a lot of uncertainty and there's, I think there's this sort of underlying, what I think is interesting, something we talked about last week with Mithra Forensic Research is this idea of taking the market price as efficient and then working backwards from there, which isn't what Wolf Report is literally doing in their argument, but is what buying the dip is, right? Buying the dip is this sort of, oh, this is yeah. this is a short term. There will be regression to the previous price. There will be some sort of recovery. And it's a strategy that for 10 years has worked pretty well generally. I think if you had bought in December, you're pretty happy with the buys that you made probably. And if you had bought in February, 2016 and on it goes, like there have been a lot of these moments. And so with an individual company, there's usually a more specific reason for that. And yeah, I I'm fairly skeptical that anything is really going to change in the next five to 10 years to dislodge Boeing's place in the industry. I think they are, subject to some short-term headwinds around costs, potential regulatory changes, whatever. Their reputation does take a real hit into your time frame mismatch. I think you're right, but you know, they're the more this happens, the more urgency is built around the need to develop a competitor or whatever else. And so there's some real issues going on there. But yeah, I don't know. So I think that it's not not a position that I'm going to be digging into, but I think the idea of how to factor in news, I think it would be more interesting if you were like Wolf Report, if you'd already opened a position. And that's where I think you're kind of getting at. I think it's reasonable if you've already opened a position, you probably have a fundamental thesis on Boeing. It seems unlikely that this will rock that thesis too much. And so I think that's, that's where I guess I'm personally not bullish on Boeing, but bullish on the general analysis that the author took and the general approach to the stock. One thing that I think I would take away from this, I think 
I can't quite let go that we both saw some things at, on our cursory look at the financial statements that seemed interesting, surprising, or questionable given how we sort of what we would have expected to see. And so something I would be very interested in is a deeper dive look from a sort of investigative or short seller type of approach to Boeing and see how you could possibly make sense of some of these dynamics playing out on the financial statements. So I'm not saying that there's any accounting irregularities or anything like that. I'm not saying that what I'm, but I'm saying it's probably a pretty interesting project to look at Boeing and see how it rationalizes these accounting choices because they do seem surprising on the surface. So that would be the level of work that I think would go into developing. For me, that's another sort of avenue of attack for looking at this company. I think that's, we're looking a lot at the headlines and the surface here. I think there's potentially something interesting on a more detailed look, and maybe we should try and find someone who's done some work there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where bringing in an expert to can better understand the industry or or the stock as an investor would help us just figure out if what we're seeing is a real issue or just something that we're ignorant about at this point. So- ah, come on, ignorance. Yeah, probably that's what it is. It's possible. <laughs> we don't know everything, Mike. Not yet. Not yet, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> growth mindset, everybody. <laughs> we right. leave you with a growth mindset. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Bye, Mike. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. Here's Oppenheimer Funds with a last word on their podcast, Megatrends. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're speaking with an airline industry expert for next week's podcast. So if you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for that. If you didn't enjoy this, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com and tell us what you'd like to hear improved. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.